Okay, so if you can't hear me this morning, you've got to blame the sound guy for, uh, for that one. But uh, in all seriousness, with a bit, a bit of a double handling skeleton crew in the July holidays, uh, really do yell at me if you can't hear me and I will, uh, I will adjust. So how am I going now? Up or down? Good? How about the foyer? I saw faces before. Good? All right, awesome. Thank you. Well, let's pray as we spend time in God's Word together. Father God, as we've just heard your word read and now spend time sitting with it, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness and depth. And yet its message is understandable, is knowable. Thank you because the Bible is your word. We can not only know about you and know about your work in this world, but we can know you yourself personally, deeply. And so God, this morning we pray that you might position our hearts now in a, in a, in a place of readiness to hear you speak. May we get to know you better this morning. Amen. Have you ever needed to overhaul something? Have you ever needed to overhaul something? A little while ago, uh, my oven fan started making these strange sorts of noises. Uh, it, was, it was making these sort of scraping, scratching, struggling sounds. And at first, I ignored it. I'm thinking, oh, there's a good chance it'll sort itself out. It didn't. The turning point for me came when I couldn't cook a delicious and very non-kosher crispy uh, roast pork with crispy crackling on top. The, the lack of crispy crackling pork belly, that was my turning point, my tipping point. I had to do something about this fan. So the truth had settled in my mind. I had to overhaul this oven fan. So I start finding, I pull the door off the front, I find the screws on the front, and I pull the oven out of the cabinet, and it's a bunch more screws on the back, so I undo them and pull the cover off. I did turn the power off, by the way, for Gerardia <laughs> stressing out over there. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I track down the fan, and, and the story goes on. You'll also be glad to know I used heat-resistant resi grease, so I have not yet burned my house down. Uh, my oven needed an overhaul. Uh, we can do it with uh, all kinds of items, um, things like that. Do you ever feel like you yourself needs an overhaul? Tired or weary? Or back wallowing in that sin that you vowed never to return to? Or you find yourself surprised by a, an, an apathy that has settled? in your heart, and a lack of love towards others. Or you keep wrecking relationships. Or you just find yourself in this, this rut emotionally and spiritually. If that's you today, you are not alone. That's a human condition. Every human being needs an overhaul, a, a transformation by God. And for someone 
who is not yet following Jesus. That, that hasn't even begun, that transformation from God that is available. There's no, no amount of, of self-help or self-improvement or determined willpower will, will affect the root problem of distance and disconnection from your Creator. And for the disciple of Jesus, we're a work in progress still. Being transformed by God. But there's a sense in which we know we need multiple overhauls. And we, we, we stall out in our spiritual journey. Jonah chapter 3 uh, is where we're at today. We're continuing our series into deep mercy through the story of Jonah. And, and chapter 3 is about this truth, that, that God cares enough to overhaul the heart of anyone. I'm going to uh, tell you the story, and then we're going to look at two things to notice and explore in the story. So firstly, the story. And um, before we get into chapter 3, a reminder, uh, if you've forgotten or if you're visiting with us today, the story so far, it's early 700s BC. Jonah, a prophet in Israel, is told by God to go and proclaim a message of judgment over the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, which is in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Uh, But Jonah runs the opposite direction. He gets on a boat headed for the ancient equivalent of whoop-whoop, Tarshish, Uh, It's probably down the the bottom of Spain. And uh, God stops him with an epic storm. Uh, He's turfed overboard. That's actually him still trying to run at that point. And then God saves him from drowning with a giant fish. And so Jonah sitting in the stomach of this giant fish, and that's the famous bit that we all know from the children's stories. He, he, He prays in the stomach of this fish. And it's a prayer of rescue because he thought he was going to be dead, and he's not dead yet. But at the same time, the prayer is curious, and clearly Jonah still doesn't like the idea of Nineveh having an opportunity to possibly receive mercy from God and compassion from him. But Jonah knows he has no choice, and so he will go, and off he goes. After Jonah's prayer, God causes the fish to vomit him onto the beach, and uh, there he is. Now we're up to date. This is where we pick up the story with a probably fairly disgusting-looking Jonah on the beach. Next, the Lord spoke to Jonah again, a second time. Get up and go now to that great city, Nineveh, and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah got up. And he headed the month-long journey straight for Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a great city to God. It took three days to see it all. On the first day of Jonah walking through, he shouts, 40 days from now, and Nineveh will be overturned. Well, everything was overturned. The people of Nineveh believed God. A time of fasting was declared, a a way of seeking God's mercy. And then everyone, no matter how, how great and powerful or small and powerless, put on 
itchy hessian sacks as cloth, a way to symbolize repentance, a turning. And when God's message reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne and took off his royal robes. He put on hessian sack too and sat down in a pile of dust. And then he declared right across Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, no one, not even animals from your herds or your flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. Everyone was to seek God's mercy. And also, both people and animals must wear hessian sacks. Everyone was to show their repentance at a turning. Let everyone call urgently to God. And who knows? Perhaps God might turn and with compassion turn from his fierce anger and we won't be destroyed. When God saw what they had done, how they had turned from their evil and wicked ways, he compassionately did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. That's the story. It's a whopper. First thing to notice and explore, Jonah preaches, and he preaches a rubbish and brilliant sermon. It is simultaneously, I love this, as you look at this thing, it is simultaneously the worst and most effective sermon in the Bible. But let's step back to verse 1 to start with. So you can follow along up on the screen or in your Bible or device would be fantastic too. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So the second half of the story picks up with God's initiative again. You know, Jonah has already said in his prayer that he will go. God has spewed him onto the beach. But it's almost as if we need to hear it from God again. Jonah gets a second chance to participate in God's work. And so verse 2, he's told, go. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. The city continues to be described as, as great. You could read that as important. Important to God. At this point, it's, it's helpful to, to compare the first time God's word came to Jonah and now this second time. If you flick back to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it starts off very similar, drawing us into that comparison. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. There's those early similarities in the, in the call, uh, inviting us to that, that comparison, and then to consider the, the significance of the, the contrast and the difference that is there as well. The first time around, Jonah is, is told, go and, and, and preach against Nineveh, because God's taking note of their wickedness, of their evil, and he's going to do something about it. This time, Jonah's not told that message. This time he's told, proclaim to it the message I give you. We're now back in, in chapter 3, verse 2. 
the message I give you. It's, it's, it's strange to think about, really. It's not past tense, not the, the message I have already given you, Jonah. Get on with it. Why am I reminding you again? He'll be given the message when he gets there. Go to Nineveh, and there, once you're there, give the message I give you. It raises the question, what, what exactly is the message? It raises the thought in our minds, and does Jonah actually end up giving the message? Let's keep pondering that. Now, we shouldn't read this as, as a change in the message, because God is still following through with his plan, despite Jonah's reluctance. This is a continuation of the plan, but, but maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a foreshadowing here of, of Jonah's greatest fear. We'll see that fear clearly next week in chapter 4, but his greatest fear, that the result of his preaching in Nineveh might not be Nineveh's destruction, but something else. And so verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Did Jonah obey God this time? You might seem, feel like that's a strange question for me to be asking. Yeah, yes, we read it right there. But interestingly, the, the original Hebrew text that we have translated into English, the author holds back just a little bit. He holds back from explaining Jonah's action as obedience. Rather, he just states the facts. And so, for example, the, the Christian Standard Bible, CSB, uh, says it like this, Jonah got up and went. And you can see the, the parallel. Jonah was just told, get up and go. And then we read, Jonah got up and went. And so, the action tells us this level of, of physical obedience. But we're left to ponder Where's Jonah's heart really at in this? Second half of verse 3. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Now, this is historically an interesting bit. The first readers would have known what archaeologists have now told us. <laughs> three days' journey, good one, really? The, the, the city wall was uh, about a 12-kilometer circuit. And... Um, Here's a, here's a picture from Google Maps. You can, you can actually still see the ex excavation site today uh, on Google Maps. It's pretty cool. Um, we could camp out there a lot longer, but there's a little snapshot. Um, the, the bit that hasn't been sort of redeveloped, if you, if you use Google Maps to measure the perimeter, you get a, a bit over eight kilometers. Uh, Nineveh was not that huge. And now I did a, a, I mean, it was big by ancient standards, but I did a little experiment this week. Um, shout out to Tracy and her mum who helped us do this, exper uh, this experiment. Uh, they came and chilled at uh, our house late while the kids were in bed, and Catherine and I went for an evening walk along the jetty and then along the foreshore. And uh, we decided to walk the 12 kilometres uh, to test this whole three-day journey thing, see if we'd be back three days from then. Uh, it took us a little bit less than two hours, which you know, I'm, quite, I'm quite happy with. Thank you. Um, less than two hours. Three-day journey? You loop the outside, you'd be done in two hours. The, the, for the author of Jonah to say three days' journey, the original reader's eyebrows would be raised. A and it's an absurd size for an ancient city uh, uh, anyway. But this, this isn't a mistake 
is it? It's not a mistake. It's, it's part of the satirical, larger-than-life feel of the book, and so it's going to tell us something important. The, the ridiculous supposed scope of the city is about to highlight a ridiculous, miraculous scope of repentance and a ridiculous scope of God's compassion and mercy. We get to the rubbish but brilliant sermon, verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So he gets one day into a three-day job. See, see what he's showing us? He's, he's, he's only done one-third of the task. And the result? Something unbelievable happens. This is in the NIV, if you're following on the screen, you can count. How many words is it? It's an eight-word sermon. He's doing way better than me. I'm on a couple of hundred by now, I think. Um, it's uh, even better in Hebrew. He gets it down to five words. Five Hebrew words is his sermon. And the result, over 120,000 people repent. That's the end of chapter 4, tells us the number. And what's not in his sermon? There is no mention of Nineveh's evil and wickedness. I mean, why will they be overthrown? Can we have some explanation here, Jonah? There's, there's no mention of how are they to respond. Usually, prophets would tell you how to respond. They, they, would, they would call you back from where you've been going wrong and say, this is how you turn back to God. But there's, there's no mention of how to respond. And there's no mention even of God. Nineveh will be overthrown. Who, by who? You, you, Jonah? Who's doing the overthrowing? This, this is a strange sermon. Some Bible teachers have uh, ref- reflected on it in this way, and, and I think it's very helpful. It seems like Jonah attempts prophetic sabotage. Jonah attempts prophetic sabotage. If he preaches a rubbish enough message of doom and gloom, then there is no way they could turn back to God and get forgiven. But God won't be outdone by him. Jonah's message still seems more than slightly rebellious. Or maybe, or maybe there is pure genius in what God has told him to say. Maybe the sermon is actually exactly what God wanted him to say. This is the message, and he's given it verbatim from what God gave him. And God has played on him a big one. Let me show you. Just before we do, though, just setting that up. Words commonly have a, a double meaning, don't they? I, I love a good pun. Uh, I love a good pun. Uh, now, whilst I may have once known an English teacher who rudely described them as the lowest form of wit, I think puns are fun, and she was not. Uh, visual puns are great too. Here's a couple for you, coming up on the screen. Okay, cool, we got that. Yep, yep, all right, next. Okay, the groaning's coming. This is good. It's working. Okay. (laughs) All right, thank you. This is getting worse and worse. All right, have you got that one? You have to be nerdier for that one. All right, okay, a few people do. Uh, Well done, both of you, for that one. 
Uh, I'll explain later if you're interested. Okay, there's a, you're welcome for that, by the way. Um, words often have double meanings. And there was a clever double meaning going on in this sermon from Jonah. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh will be overthrown. That word overthrown, the Hebrew carries a double meaning. They could be overthrown as in brought down, destroyed, wiped out, and evidently the Ninevites hear it in that way. But they could be, and it could mean overturned or overhauled. They could be changed. They could be transformed, turned around, renewed. And that's what we see happen. Despite Jonah's rubbish sermon, things are about to get shaken up. And I think as as we reflect on this and and what God is doing with with Jonah, who's a a pretty average prophet I think we've seen so far, um, to go generously, it's it's worth noticing uh, this for, for us today. Repentance and and lives changed and turned around does not happen because of excellent preaching or excellent witnessing. It doesn't. Yes, God may, and often does, use strivings towards excellence and our hard work. But this story highlights God's undeniable supremacy in salvation. We are simply jars of clay containing his message. In our weakness, he is strong. In God's kingdom, if you're willing to say yes, that's more than enough for God to work with. You could be, and maybe you sit here today, resistant, hesitant to be that active in God's mission, like Jonah, almost running, and your life choices. Maybe you've been running from something God wants you to do or say, big or small. Who, who needs to hear God's message of compassion and love in your circles of influence? Maybe deep down you know God's been wanting you, maybe for some time now, to free up time in a particular area, to be able to say yes to, could be kids' church teaching, or leading a connect group, or a ministry apprenticeship, or to start the long journey of training to become an overseas missionary, or just to take that step to say yes to joining a serving team here at church. Are you being obedient in proclaiming Jesus' message of compassion and love. Because you know the awesome truth? If you, if you proclaim it with a, a barely willing attitude, a, a cold heart, and even a complacent lack of skill, terrorists might repent and believe. That's what this story shows us. This is God's work. Do you believe he can do it? There's only one way to say yes to that statement. And it is what Jonah did. It's to get up and get going.
we see active belief from the Ninevites. The second thing to notice, Nineveh and God turn, but obviously in very different ways. We see in the second half of this chapter, God's global grace transforms even the distant. Verse 5, have a look with me. The, The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. The Ninevites believed God. That's what's strange about that again. I mean, think about it. Remember, Jonah Jonah walked through the city. Jonah preached. Jonah never mentioned God. And yet, they they believed God. I mean, they were never going to believe a message like that from a man. But from the one true living God? Absolutely. And so they fasted a physical, tangible way to show they're seeking God's mercy. And they put on sackcloth, goat's hair, swords of itchy Hessian material to symbolize they're turning, they're repenting, they're turning. And let's think about that for a moment. That the Ninevites, the Ninevites believed is insanely unbelievable. Let me give you a little bit of a reminder of who these guys are. If you were around earlier this year when we did part one of this series, or if you're visiting, here's a reminder of uh, uh, what we know from history about the the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a terrifying, terrifying empire. And they saw their cruelty as a virtue in a way that no other people had done so up to that point in human history. They built obelisks, pillars, and statues to display their torture of captured people. Here's just a little example. Uh, This is prisoners of war being skewered and displayed. It's a good way to knock down the confidence of those who are still alive that you're trying to conquer. Or there's this one up on the screen as well. Uh, Prisoners of war being skinned alive. You can take it down now. Assyrian kings boasted about how they chopped off people's limbs while they were still alive. Hands, feet, noses, ears, private parts. They paraded heads on poles. Apparently you can get uh, seven to eight heads per pole. They were nasty, horrible people. Wrongs seem right. Rights seem wrong. If you saw a conquered a city that had been conquered by the Assyrians, you'd probably be gagging and hurling your guts at the gruesome sight and devastation. They are a clear and easy example of sin and wickedness at its worst and ugliest. Nineveh is the most unlikely people to receive God's compassion and utterly undeserving. They were basically the powerful, successful, militarily organized terrorists of the known world. They were brutal terror mongers. They were successful, highly successful in their conquests and excessively proud of their violent reputation. You see, they never would have believed a man, Jonah. But God, the one who overturns hearts and minds, him, miraculously, spectacularly, they believed. 
and only on the first day of a three-day task. The author continues to emphasize the scope and scale of their repentance. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Verse 7, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. So the king hears the message. Jonah hasn't even got to him. He, he just hears it somehow. He hears it through somebody else. And he intensifies the repentant response for the people. He includes drink in the fasting. So that intensification, that, and that wasn't normal, a normal part of fasting practices. He includes animals with the fasting. Can you imagine after one day the kind of noise coming from your herds and flocks? Once you say, hey guys, just, just let you know sheep, um, cows, you're, uh, you're in this fasting thing too. The, the cry out that would have come from them. And, and he, he even adds forbidding tasting anything. Just, just to be clear, guys, we're fasting. Okay? That means you can't taste stuff. And then he calls them. This is the Ninevite king calls them urgently, cry out, yell out, shout out to God. And all of you, give up your evil ways and your violence. We see a new word here. And this this story is so rich and beautiful. I'm sorry I'm talking about uh, uh, the the words so much. You've got different translations amongst us. You'll see a lot of this. Um, But uh, but where where we see uh, give up, let them give up their evil ways. Uh, that word now pops up four times in the next three verses, uh, but different words in English. Uh, and, and it's the word turn. It's the word turn. Let them turn from their evil ways. Remember, remember Jonah's message? They'd be overthrown. They would be overturned. It, it was a different, uh, a different word there, that, that initial uh, m- uh, sermon word, overturned. But you, you can't escape the, the concept link that is there. Their, their hearts were overturned. The king calls them to turn, and that's exactly what God is doing in their hearts. God has played a good one on Jonah in his attempt at prophetic sabotage. Nice try, Jonah, but God is a fan of puns. That's your quote for the day, by the way. Uh, verse, verse 9. Who knows? The king's wondering. Who knows? God may yet relent. That's the word again. That word give up, turn. God may yet turn. He's going, if, if we turn, maybe God will turn. And with compassion, turn, and there it is, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Jonah's prophetic t- sabotage has come unstuck with a king who is apparently happy to proclaim complete ignorance, complete uncertainty as to whether his massively inconvenient fasting and clothing plan will have any guarantee of success whatsoever. I mean, may, maybe, guys, like, can you just all please turn your lives upside down for a little bit? And um, maybe, I, I guess, might work. We'll see. Not sure. Maybe. I mean, can, can you imagine Mark McGowan rolling out one of those COVID safety plans? You know, guys, we're going to shut down a whole heap of businesses we're going to cancel your party plans. We're going to mess up your church services. You can't go to that funeral anymore. Oh, yeah, and by the way, you've got to wear a mask everywhere you go. And maybe, look, really, we're just guessing. We, um, we don't really know. It may work, may not work, not really 
I mean, he never finished that way, did he? He never finished with that. We're, we're told this is based on, on health advice. This is evidence-based research. This is, this is the, the experience of the other states and learning from them. That was, that was the message that he ended with, not, oh, I don't really know, but could you do it anyway? I mean, this, the king's proclamation to Nineveh is just getting absurd. And that's the point. A few lines from one Bible commentator. They'll come up on the screen. The, the point is the extravagant love of God that welcomes the sincerely repentant. A God who is intensely interested, even in the salvation of animals, along with the wicked Ninevites, must be interested in anyone. A God interested in a people with a fickle whim of repentance is an extravagant God who will welcome anyone who will turn to him. This story reveals a wild and off-center God who really does love the wicked in spite of their wicked, wickedness and foolishness. It's a great line. I believe in a wild and off-center God who really does love even the most distant. Verse 10, we start to come to the end of the story, of the chapter. When God saw what they did, how they had turned, there it is again, he saw their turning, he relented. That's actually, the king was pondering, maybe God will have compassion and turn. That's the same word that we now get, relented. King wondered if he might have compassion. We're told one verse later, he had compassion. He compassionately did not bring against them the destruction he had threatened. They were hoping on God's compassion after they turned towards him. And God saw their turning and he had compassion on them. And that's, that's the point of his message of judgment that we saw right back in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. That was the point. He was going to stop their wickedness and evil, but his desire was to do it by overhauling the city's hearts and minds and lives rather than overthrow the city to destruction. Nineveh was spiritually, morally, culturally and geographically distant from Jonah. In, in every way. This is a story of God's incredible love. That God's global grace transforms even the distant. And there's a lot that we could say there about God's heart for global mission. But we're going to save that for next week. I want to flag that that is coming. We need to notice that in this passage. For now, do you ever feel distant from God? I asked you earlier. Do you ever feel distant? God gravitates towards you. God's heart is inclined towards you. He sent his son for you. How do you respond when you feel distant from God? Turn. Turn towards him. One Bible teacher asked the question, is there good news? 
Is there good news for people who can't even repent right? Yes. Yes. Turn to God. Turn to a lifetime of turning to Jesus, a lifetime of learning his way of life. Maybe you need God's compassion this morning. Maybe you need his, his transformative grace. Is there a sin in your life that you need to turn away from? Maybe it's one of those, those acceptable sins, the, the acceptable ones, the ones that our Christian culture can, can often turn a, turn a blind eye towards. Greed, gossip, anger, apathy towards the lost in the world, idolizing success and hard work, inaction in the face of injustice. Turn once again to Jesus and his cross. God cares enough, God cares enough to overhaul the hearts of anyone. And he'll keep doing it. This is where we're going to press pause on the story for today. There is much more to, to be said about God's compassion. And we need to talk more about his heart for the lost and distant all around the world. And that's coming next week. But for now, in Jonah chapter 3, as we sit here, we see that even the most distant person, even the most distant person should have the opportunity to hear God, to turn from their ways, and receive his compassion and grace. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your care, your great care. Help us to rest in it this morning. For those of us who need a, need a new or a fresh turning to you, please help us to do it. To do it trusting in your great love shown to us, not only in the story of Jonah, but in the person and work of your son, Jesus. And may we all praise you and enjoy you for your compassion and grace and love. Amen.